Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and elsewhere. Please also be kind enough to leave us a favorable review. Now, the journal's editorial page, we believe strongly in free expression. So each week on this podcast, we explore in some candor issues of topical interest. We speak in depth to people who are leading figures in their field, practitioners, experts, commentators, to give us a better understanding of the big issues of our times. This week, I'm delighted to say that my guest is Ayan Hirsi Ali, celebrated writer and commentator. Ms. Ali was born in Somalia and brought up a Muslim. After her family fled persecution there, she was educated in the Netherlands, where she became a strong critic of Islam and Islamic culture and began a promising political career. After the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, she spoke out strongly against radical Islam and its apologists. Her stance earned her enemies, and she's been the object of repeated death threats from Islamist extremists. But her willingness to challenge orthodoxy has caused waves here in the United States, too, where she now lives supposed home of free speech and free expression. She knows firsthand what cancel culture is like, having had the distinction of being cancelled by a number of supposedly leading universities and cultural institutions. It hasn't stopped her from speaking out, however, which she does very, very articulately. She's written two acclaimed autobiographies and a number of other books, including most recently Prey, P-R-E-Y, I should say, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. She's a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. I should also say she has her own podcast, the Ayan Hersey Ali podcast. So I'm doing a little bit of cross-promotion there, Ayan. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Jerry, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So I want to talk a lot about culture and the culture that we are currently dealing with in the United States, the hegemony of the intolerant left, the way in which they control so much of the discussion here. But let me start, just I want to ask you a little bit about your own personal experience. I don't think anybody could be surprised that your outspoken criticism of Islam and Islamic culture earned you enemies in the Muslim world. Perhaps more surprising, though, is that you found yourself the object of a lot of criticism here in the United States and, of course, in Europe, too. Perhaps I think that gives an illustration, I think, of the challenges that we face in dealing with this climate that we face of so where so many people are so reluctant to allow freedom of speech. Talk about that, if you would. Well, so I think as a background, I would say the fact that I grew up in a Somali household and that my family comes from Somalia, which is probably one of the most violent countries in the world and one of the poorest, if not the poorest. And having then fled with my family and lived in other parts of Africa, the Middle East, that has given me what maybe the world would call living experience, experience living, if you use their jargon, which is. And I know you use the word culture, but I am beginning to think of this as civilization. You know, parts of Somalia and parts of Africa, the parts that I was with, it is this a struggle with civilization or with trying to get civilized, with trying to catch up. The politically correct phrase has always been the developing world. What were we developing towards? It was the emancipation of women. It was the understanding of reason and rationality and finding a balance between reason and religion. These are the things that kept, if I may say so, the country and the context I was born into 
that's what kept us behind. And so the fact that I was forced into marriage, that I barely, I mean, I went to school, but it was nothing compared to, say, what Neil, my husband, uh, sorts of schools he went to. So that kind of, I feel, you know, most of us who come from the third world countries and come into the West, we compare our histories, our biographies or autobiographies with what we are experiencing now. And I'm just stunned to watch what I thought was the greatest nation in the world um, abandon its institutions, abandon its history, and adopt these uh, farcical theories that are now summed up in wokeism. And I don't really think, Jerry, that most Americans or most of our elite have actually adopted these notions. But either they are complacent or they are frightened. And the effect is the same. It's the same as if they had adopted it, because this terrible ideologies, these terrible ideologies, they advance anyway. And and what's interesting, I think, about my background is if these ideologues get what they want, they are going to transform the world that we thought was civilized, America and the rest of the West, to look like the world that I fled, that we flee or that we try to flee from the third world. And that's the extraordinary thing, isn't it, Ian? That the, the inversion that we see in so much of this debate here in the West that you describe very, very well there, what you fled from repressive society, repressive government, repressive culture, and sort of anti-civilization, essentially, in many of those countries, all of them, many of them. Yes. And yet we're now encouraged to believe here in the West. I grew up in Britain, have now lived in America for 25 years, but it's largely the same in Britain. It's the same in much of Europe, too, as it is in the US. We're encouraged to believe now in the West that it's our civilizations that have been the repressive ones, that have been the ones that have been oppressing people around the world, and that somehow it's we who need to change and revolutionize in order to bring ourselves somehow to a more acceptable place. Yes, and that's dressed up as self-reflection. It's also dressed up as justice, or at least that's the jargon that's used. And the West has really been good. It's been great self-reflection to an extreme and I encourage that. I think it's fantastic to look back at our history and have our children look back at our history and see what went wrong. The only reason for doing that is to avoid repeating those mistakes, not use the past and what happened in the past as an excuse to destroy what we have. And that's what I don't understand. One thing I try to do on these podcasts is to explore how this came about, I mean, it's in my lifetime that we've gone from essentially, look, there's always been, as you say, we've always been very good at self-reflection. Americans, you know, Western civilization has always been extremely good at <laughs> gazing at its own navel and analyzing its own many, many flaws. No, no one would pretend we don't have flaws. America has many flaws, you know, from slavery and discrimination and everything else. And Britain has had its colonial history, which isn't very proud. But there's been this extraordinary inversion in my lifetime from essentially saying, look, we maybe weren't perfect, but we achieved many things. To now being encouraged again to think that we are almost everything that our civilization stands for is somehow evil. And I'm wondering, and again, I'd like your perspective on this, how has this come about in a couple of generations that we've gone from being proud of our civilization to being told that we should be ashamed of it? So, Jerry, as you know, I was fully immersed in trying to understand radical Islamic ideology and its challenge to Western civilization. And I, you know, up from 2001 until, frankly, the end of, and I don't think there is an end to ISIS, but when ISIS was removed from Syria and Iraq, up until that point, I was really fully immersed in that. 
And my complaint against the West was, oh, you're too complacent. Uh, you're not paying enough attention. What the Islamists say, they really mean that. And so then when I went and tried to understand this, I think we call it wokeism now. For me, it started after George Floyd. And I started reading up on it, uh, talking to people. And some of the people like Peter Bogosian, I think you know of him from Portland, uh, James Lindsay. They say this dates back to the French uh, theories of postmodernism. I'm aware of those theories, but I've always known them as fringe theories. I mean, from time immemorial, we've always had human beings who are opposed to civilization. I mean, I have read Rousseau and the criticism of Rousseau. Um, it's this romanticizing of primitive life, of life before civilization, the, the talk of the novel savage. and all. I mean, this was always with us, but it was uh, not something that would have this impact that it has now. And I have to tell you, I still am puzzled. I understand the race relations in the US. I think I understand it more now than 10 years ago. I understand that in our universities, we had all these fringe studies, gender, race, etc. But that that would then have the impact of destroying elite. I'll be very honest with you, the collapse of leadership amongst our elite that we're witnessing now, is it something that was happening already to begin with? Or is it caused by wokeism? I don't think it's caused by wokeism. I think that it was underway and that's the more interesting question. I want to talk more about this, but I wanted to also just briefly, since you've talked a little bit about your upbringing and about your background, a little bit, I want to talk very briefly about Islam, a quick question on Islam, because you've not only obviously been very critical of Islamist radicalism and the sort of terrorism, you've actually been very critical of Islam itself, um, obviously on the issues like treatment of women, but more generally, you know, as a set of religious beliefs, religious doctrine that actually create, in your view, some of these extraordinary pathologies that we've seen. There are those who say this is unfair. Most Muslims are not terrorists. Most Muslims are appalled by terrorism. They don't support what happened on 9-11 or anywhere else. Islam is a quote-unquote religion of peace. There is a tolerant Islam. There is a kind of, what a better word, moderate Islam that we try to encourage, that Americans have tried to encourage even as we were fighting the war on terror. Why are you so skeptical of this idea that actually Islam itself can be somehow that it's not a twisting of Islam, but there is something fundamentally in Islam that is creating some of these terrible problems that you see in, in Muslim societies and the beyond. First, let me start by saying Muslim societies, Muslim people, like all people, they desire peace and prosperity. And I think in general, Muslims are no more violent than anyone else in general, just as human beings. But as you can see, the cancer of wokeism that tumor of wokeism is in our Western society. It's something that's from within. It's not from outside. And so within Muslim societies, within Muslim civilization, the ideology of Islamism is it's Islamic. And I think as a matter of reflection, and I think when I started asking these questions, I still identified as a Muslim. I wanted to see what is it then within Islam, Islamic scripture, Islamic history that gives way to these things. And I can't look away from the fact that the Quran, as it stands, the Hadith, and even the history of jihad, very well documented, does give a coherent ideology on a plate to Islamists like Bin Laden to argue that Allah's intention for the world 
is to become Muslim by all means possible. And so, uh, of course, most Muslims denounce the violence that is applied in their name and in the name of Islam by the terrorists and by the ideologues like bin Laden al-Baghdadi. They denounce that, they condemn that, they hate it. But what they fail to do is to scrutinize the sources of that so that as a Muslim, you are at once saying the Prophet Muhammad is infallible and the actions of bin Laden are to be condemned. There is a dissonance. And I think that it's much healthier to figure out what this dissonance and straighten it out and you know, hold this mirror to the believer and say, how do you resolve this? And it's your responsibility to resolve that. And I think those attempts are what lead to reform or change or progress. I learned that from the West. I went to the University of Leiden and I found out that that's exactly what the Christians were doing with their own faith. You raise that point very readily. There's a lot in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, that is also that could be interpreted and indeed has been interpreted by Christians and indeed some Jews over the centuries as a kind of a mandate for coercion, for aggressive promotion of their religious beliefs that, you know, by the sword. Is it really so distinctive to Islam that you seem to suggest that sort of Islamism is kind of inherent in Islam, but isn't, again, isn't certainly isn't the history of certainly Christianity and from the Crusades, uh, from before the Crusades onwards, isn't there a lot of biblical authority for a lot of very, very, very violent and murderous activity by Christians over the years? Yes. So violence is not inherent in Islam. You will find violence in any and every religion, as Christopher Hitchens documented, different religions that we thought, at least I thought, were peaceful, like Buddhism. He goes on to show that, in fact, they're not. So violence is inherent in all religions. Violence is inherent probably in all human beings. What makes Islam unique is the almost complete absence of critical thinking. This reflection on that dissonance that I just described, where you say Muhammad is infallible, we have to do what he did and said, and we have to abide by his legacy. But on the other hand, we are going to condemn these Islamists from bin Laden to Baghdadi. That's what's absent, dealing with the dissonance and confronting it. And that, I think, is a very Western characteristic, to go through the torture of the dissonance itself and come out on the other end. And I think an effect of that has been that Christianity over the centuries has become more peaceful. We're going to take a short break there, but stay with us. And when we come back, we'll have more with our conversation with Ayan Hersey Ali. Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Welcome back. I'm talking with Ian Hersey Ali about Western civilization and its malcontents. Let's talk about America and Western civilization. You've recently with a number of other prominent writers, you co-signed a statement in National Review, which caught my eye, which is about America's crisis of self-doubt, as you called it. You contained this quote. You said, the American project as such is under assault. Our history is the subject of a revisionist critique that is all-encompassing, unsparing, and very often flatly inaccurate. And I'm sure many of our listeners will absolutely agree with that. How does do those of us who believe, actually, that for all its flaws, the American project is still probably the greatest achievement of human civilization... How do we fight back against this prevailing 
orthodoxy right now? I think we have to bring about the courage of standing up to them. I think on the one hand, we have a great deal of complacency. We are told constantly that we're polarized. But in my experience in America, the population is actually not that polarized. It's our elites and uh, different reasons for, for that. Uh, you are in the media business. In the media right now, for them to make any kind of money, they have to sell outrage. That's the business model. And so sometimes it appears as if everyone who lives in America is either a follower of Rachel Maddow or a follower of Sean Hannity. And that's not the case. But there is a great deal of complacency that what we're witnessing is something that's going to pass and it's going to pass on its own. And maybe that's the case. That would be the good news. But I'm much more worried than that. I think that every institution, you know, top-down government and colleges and universities, corporations, the entertainment business, even churches, every single institution is affected. And all the elites, that's the leaders in these institutions, are just not able to deal with it. And then there is the bottom-up aspect of it, where the family is falling apart, our public schools Uh, but increasingly also our private schools, are really not delivering the service of educating children. And this goes on and on. And I think if our institutions continue to be eroded in this way, then we are up against a very, very serious problem. It's the problem of implosion from within. And we are dealing with adversaries like China. And I think this war on Ukraine demonstrates how ruthless someone like a Putin is. And our young people, Gen Z and the millennials, seem to be almost oblivious to this. I listen to them and I talk to them about the war in Ukraine. It's like they're watching a game. You're either for this side or you're either for that side. They don't understand the implications. When I talk to young people about free speech, they think it's a right-wing tool to silence the left. They have no clue where it came from. and what it means, they they have no clue what it is to live in a society that's not free. Since you mentioned Ukraine, I should say, that I'd be interested to get your take on this. There are some people on the right in this country, some conservatives in this country who actually, well, perhaps before February the 24th anyway, saw Vladimir Putin as a kind of, as an upholder of the very sort of civilizational values that you and I have been talking about as, um, you know, Christian, um, if you like. I mean, actually, I know you're not, you don't believe in the sort of overtly religious, but sort of what could be generally termed Western values that, that he represented. I take it you don't share the view that uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia is a sort of model of the civilization that we should be trying to create. No, but he had become adept at manipulating members of our elite, in this case, on the conservative side. And that's who we, we are an open society. And so obviously we are open to attacks from outside in ways that a closed society like China or many of the Middle Eastern countries are not. Iran is another one. But regardless of that, I still think that the conservatives, now that they can see what Putin's intentions were on display, that they won't have the same kind of luxury that the left has, where the left can pretend for a very long time that these terrible ideas that they are promoting have no consequences. What do you think on this issue of the sense in which our civilization is under siege? Are you optimistic? Do you think we've maybe sort of reached a turning point? I'm very interested. There does seem to have been in the last couple, you mentioned the George Floyd incident, which kind of, if you like, really sort of accentuated the woke authoritarianism. And we went through that extraordinary period after that. But it does seem to me that there is something of a backlash going on, whether it is more and more media people speaking out and saying, actually, and talking about how they've been, you know, uh, about how they're 
attempts to challenge the orthodoxy have been suppressed. You've got some evidence that people at universities are, are stepping up. You've got interesting efforts to create new universities. You and your husband are both involved in the, in the university. Are we at a turning point, do you think? I mean, are you optimistic about that? I mean, I hope we are. Let me use the metaphor of putting out a fire. If you think the fire is really small and a couple of buckets of water is enough to put it out, I think that's where we are at now. Some of us have seen that there's this fire and we see the implications of what that fire can do, the emergence of wokeism. I think Elon Musk calls it the mind virus, and I think it's a fantastic way of putting it. It's, it's really accurate because it, it has captured the hearts and minds of the youth in particular. And so in that sense, I think there is some sort of backlash underway, but it's not strong enough. And I think most people do not understand how rapid this fire can spread, and how damaging it can be in such a damage that we can't come back from. And I don't want to sound alarmist, but that's how I see it. Take the institution of due process. It's baffling now that you can just accuse anyone in America. And as an accuser, you cannot be cross-examined. You cannot be still in the formal courts, you can, but in universities, Title IX, I just tweeted the story of Scott, who teaches at this university in Idaho. But what he describes there, it's terrifying to me because it is the institution and the people who run the institution that are actually behind the erosion of due process in the name of civil rights, in the name of protecting the rights of women. And you see this also with the racial relations in the name of protecting black people, the entire rule of law. We're being asked to defund the police and open the prisons up and do all sorts of things that you can't easily fix afterwards. I'm sure you followed this case of the classics professor at Princeton, Joshua Katz, who was fired recently after they dredged up an episode for which he'd already been disciplined years ago of consensual relationship with a student, when it was very obvious that the real cause of their animus towards him was his willingness to stand up against this extreme racial uh, approach to the academy and to, you know, with racial preferences and all of that kind of stuff. If it can happen at a university like Princeton, which remains one of the most revered, respected institutions in the world, mm -hmm. then it does suggest that this virus, exactly the sort of mind virus you talk about, is very, 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 very firmly embedded in the system, doesn't it? And it's going to have lasting consequences because when you persecute people like Joshua Katz, and that's exactly what happened to him, completely persecuted, had nothing to do with his relationship. I know the story very well. How many Joshua Katzes will actually stand up to this? You will get a population in every institution that's frightened. And because they're frightened, they get the small group of people who call themselves activists, who feel that they're licensed them to bring the institution down. They get what they want. And I really want to repeat over and over again, if you wanted to underestimate this problem or say it's over, or, you know, we have reached uh, peak woke, <laughs> that once you start destroying institutions and you bring them down, it's very, very difficult to rebuild. And with the kind of rapid change that we are facing, AI is coming and enemies, China, Russia, tyranny all around, it becomes almost impossible to see how then we are going to recover from this. Plus, we now have at least two generations, the millennials and Gen Z, who've been maleducated, who don't understand their own history, who don't understand 
what these institutions are about that they have inherited. It's theirs. I'm too old. I'm in my 50s. And so it's theirs now. Do they have the courage and the knowledge to fight for it? Do they have the drive to fight for it? And I wonder, I really wonder. And you've pointed out too that so much of this extreme intolerance and ideological conformity is done supposedly in the interests of minorities and women particularly or, or, or you know or other minorities particularly sort of uh, you know transgender people and actually so much of this and you can speak a lot about this as an immigrant to this country as a woman who has faced extraordinary extraordinary persecution yourself i think you can speak about how damaging this is actually this refusal to see individuals as individuals and to insist on everybody being defined by their identity how damaging that can be perhaps most of all to those people whom they are supposedly defending and protecting. Absolutely. I mean, for those of us who are engaged in any kind of fight for freedom and equality, what you wanted was to be treated equally and to enjoy the freedom to go about your life as you please, equally meaning before the law, on equality of opportunity and for society to recognize you as a full human being. And what we're seeing in the West now is this remarkable phenomenon where women are supposed to be equal to men, uh, but actually they have no agency. A woman can accuse a man of anything, but the other way around is unacceptable. And then uh, race thing, it's exactly the same thing, where you can't hold the so-called protected minorities responsible for anything. And so in that sense, I would say that's the worst contempt for those individuals. I watched that terrible, not everything, not everything, but that terrible process with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And as women, what are we then? We can accuse, we can be narcissistic, we can be shamelessly self-promoting. And in fact, if I use my grandmother's language, just complete bad crazy. But we can't be held accountable because you can always just say, but I'm a woman. And that's not the sort of equality and freedom that I was fighting for. And what is his name? Jesse Smollett, that other story that was unfolding. That's not the sort of freedom I think that Martin Luther King was fighting for. For the, the perversion of everything that's real and true and beautiful, where I think we were saying we all want to be human beings. I want to be held to the same standards as you. I don't care what your skin color is and I don't care what your gender is. I want to be held to the same merits to the same standards as you are. And now we have these people advancing an ideology that are saying, no, only one set of people, white men, white heterosexual men, only they can be held to that standard. And so even they don't see the logic that by doing that, by saying that, you're actually engaging in racism and sexism of the worst kind. But because they shroud everything in this language of justice and compassion and so on, they fool people and they fool too many people. They kind of infantilize black people, women, as though they're somehow incapable of advancing themselves or fending for themselves or succeeding. Everything has to be it's so patronizing and so demeaning, actually, of the very people that they are supposedly supposedly defending. And no one has asked them to defend us. And it's more than demeaning. It's dangerous because they tribalize, they divide. They say, now you can only imagine hostility and suspicion between men and women. You can only imagine hostility and suspicion between the races and between 
those who are homosexual and heterosexual. And then even, you know, what is a well-documented mental health challenge, gender dysphoria, has been transformed into this thing, not by those who suffer from gender dysphoria, but those people who are completely self-appointed and say they speak for them in erasing women, to use one of their words. Because now, literally, in the year 2022, in the United States of America, we are debating what's a woman. That's how ridiculous things have gotten. It leads me to my concluding question, actually. <laughs> and, and forgive me, it's going to be a rather provocative one. But do you think, you know, as you survey this, especially again as someone who grew up in such an extraordinarily different civilization, and as you survey this, you look and you've lived in Europe for a long time, you've lived in the United States for a long time. Do you at times think, as some of us do, maybe civilizations do sort of destroy themselves, as I said earlier. Do you think maybe the West is just sort of giving up and that all those values that we held that make the West what it is, which are now so under threat are now so in retreat that maybe that just the West is just no longer appreciates what it's achieved, what it stands for, and perhaps in some ways just kind of deserves to disappear. I don't think it deserves to disappear. I think it's quite obvious that Western leaders are no longer defending Western civilization. I mean, some are, but not as strongly as we wish. But I think because Western civilization is in the end everybody's civilization. I hope immigrants like me and minorities who just a few years, what, 70 or so years ago, were being sent to the gas chambers, people who come in today from Cuba and Colombia and Venezuela, I think those of us who really understand and know what tyranny is and what it is to live in these pseudo-civilizations, once we come to the West, I really hope that we are the ones who are going to take this mantle and defend it. It's, it's our legacy as much as it is the legacy of the Gen Z and millennials who are born here and who are just throwing it out. That will be the ultimate irony, and I have to say a glorious irony too. And it's, it's often the only people who um, who, who haven't been sort of inured in the civilization and have become rather kind of taking it for granted and who actually are so critical of it and those who understand its values come from outside and uh, Ion, you're surely one of the staunchest and most articulate defenders of this civilization so i thank you very much indeed for joining me i'm humbly grateful for it thank you thank you jerry thank you for doing this and thank you yourself for being one of those people who fight for it thank you well that's it for this week's episode of free expression with me jerry baker from the wall street journal opinion pages Thank you very much indeed for listening. Please do join us again next time for another exploration of these issues that are driving our world. Thank you very much and goodbye. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.